Do please take a seat. And if you would turn to Colossians chapter 1. We've seen in this letter, Paul and Timothy, co-authoring this letter, have addressed the very fundamental question of how it is that we are saved. And as we saw in week one, it is only by grace that we may now get our hopes up. And then in week two, we looked at what this means for our identity. And we saw that those who are now in Christ Jesus have a new ID. We are so heavily and intimately identified with the Father now in Christ that if the Father had an iPhone X with facial recognition software, we could look at his phone and it would unlock. We have his identity, a new ID, a real, real ID by grace alone and in Christ alone, and that was weeks one and two. And each week, you may have noticed, I've alluded to it a little, that as Paul writes about identity, at the same time, he seems to have in mind the question of activity. How do identity and activity relate? What does this new ID that we have mean in practice for the way we behave? That's where Paul goes today, the activity that flows from the identity. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings. What an extraordinary comment to make. I rejoice in my sufferings. We, we all know, don't we, that suffering is not something to enjoy. If you have suffered anything from a broken heart to a broken leg, if you've had anything happen to you, you might well be thinking, what an insensitive thing to say. Joy in suffering. And uh, I think he is probably not talking about regular suffering here, things going wrong. I think he is almost certainly talking about Christian suffering. That is the kind of suffering that comes because of what your ID is. The kind of persecution, perhaps, that comes from inevitably standing up for Jesus Christ. Or perhaps... If it's not the persecution that comes, he is in jail at the moment as he writes, so it's possible. If it's not the persecution that flows from this identity, perhaps it's just that battle, that slow battle that we all have each day with our sin as we mature in faith and we start to grow up and and let go of old things that defined us, precious things, things that were important to us, as our identity is conformed to Christ's and those earthly things are stripped away, it hurts. It is a suffering experience growing up. To put God first can be like experiencing spiritual growing pains. And it's not fun. But you wouldn't want to be a grown-up, would you, still in a child's body? You wouldn't want to be the age you are now, uh, but still having the body you were born with, like that cartoon, Boss Baby, that, you know, my kids are watching at the moment. You wouldn't want to be 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years of age and still crawling around in a diaper, would you? Growing up is hard at the time, but worth it in the end. Problem is, none of this explains why it is that he is rejoicing, verse 24, in the moment. 
He's not saying, I'm not enjoying it right now, but in the end I'll look back on it with rose-tinted glasses and be glad I went through it. He's saying, I'm enjoying it now. Why is it, verse 24, he can be rejoicing in the mid of his suffering? And if you think that sounds strange, what he says next is even stranger, because we read that not even his sufferings anyway, they're someone else's. Rather, he says, verse 24, that he is suffering for their sake, and then he repeats that word, amplifying the point once more, he is suffering on their behalf. What on earth is going on? Why is Paul enjoying his suffering, and why is he suffering for someone else? If you have scripture open in front of you, what you see is the detail, and you need the detail to answer these questions. The key word in verse 24 is the first one, now. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. The key word now explains what's going on. Now tells us that what he says now is contingent upon what he said before. This statement logically flows from what he said in week one and in week two. The context of the first two sermons explains what is going on. All that he said in week one about grace, all that he said in week two about identity suddenly makes sense of this. Christ suffered for our sake. That's grace, week one. And we are in him. We are identified with him. Our identity is the same as his. That's week two. So we are not alone when we suffer. We are not just with Christ. We are in Christ in our sufferings. So if it is persecution that he has in mind, I wouldn't really, really mind being locked in a jail cell so much if I knew that Christ was going to be in there with me. If you could have a face-to-face meeting with Jesus, a sit-down cup of tea or coffee, or maybe something more Scottish, where I'm sure he drinks it, with Jesus Christ in the flesh, But the only place that you could sit down and have a wee dram with the Lord was inside of a jail cell. Would you not go in and do that? Of course you would. And wouldn't you enjoy yourself, notwithstanding the surroundings, if you could have a half an hour with Jesus Christ in the flesh? Would you not go into SCI Green to do so? Uh, In the same way, if Paul is not thinking about external persecution, but perhaps more that internal Christian suffering of the growing pains of letting go of old sins and old things that defined you and old treasures and old precious nonsense that used to be your God. Would you not mind letting go of those things if you knew that Jesus was right there with you? Having growing pains isn't so bad when you're with Jesus. Carrying the, the, the spiritual version of a middle schooler's backpack or or going back to wearing spiritual braces wouldn't be so bad if we knew that Christ Jesus was with us. And Paul says, he is. So it does make sense, the joy in suffering, if you're with Jesus. That's the context, grace and the context identity. It explains what's going on here, rejoicing in suffering. We just about get our heads around this strange idea and the strange idea that goes with it. We think, okay, he's not gone off his rocker. He does make sense after all. And then he says something else in verse 24 that seems way across the line. Still in verse 24, he says this. I am filling up what is lacking 
in Christ's afflictions. If I had reading glasses, and that's about two years away, I'd take them off at this point to look sincere. This is the, the moment uh, that, that whenever Kat and I do a Bible study on the book of Colossians, the entire room freaks out, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Their heresiometer goes like through the red and the needle flies out of the window. It goes to 11 and, and, and further, filling up what is lacking. What could, what could Paul possibly think is lacking in Christ's afflictions and more egregiously, what could he possibly think he could fill up in that which is lacking? Extraordinary comment to make. A couple of notes. Uh, this is not a word that has ever been used of Christ. Afflictions. Scour the whole thing. This particular word is never used of him. Affliction, at thalipsis in Greek, one of my favorite words. It's not a Jesus word. It's a word to do with pressure. It's a word to do with pressing down. It's a word to do with being trapped or held down. It's a word idiomatically to do with depression. It's a word derived from the olive press, where people were squeezed in a barrel and, and trapped and held down. And Christ was never held down. Christ was never trapped. Not even the grave, not even death, the strongest of our enemies, could hold Christ down. Because having died and having been buried, he rose up. It's not a Jesus word. This lacking thing doesn't mean that there's something inadequate or inefficacious about the cross. It's not saying something like, you know, the cross provided for you, saints, 90% coverage, and if you could just do enough, you could meet the extra 10% bill of salvation like an insurance copay. It's not saying that. Colossians, I think, doesn't read like a bill. It reads much more like one of those weird explanation of benefits letters that we get that says at the bottom in big letters, this is not a bill. This is not telling us that there's something lacking in the cross for salvation that we must make up ourselves from our own pockets. What it means when it talks about the thing that's lacking is that when we look at the whole story of God's people from creation through to Christ's return, when we look at creation and fall and we look at the law and the promised land and we look at exile and return and we look at the fulfillment of each of those epic chapters of the old covenant in Christ Jesus and then his death and then his resurrection and then his ascension, what is lacking in the final sentences of the final paragraph of the last chapter of God's salvation story is is the bit to do with you. What's lacking is the bit of the story where you are written in. This is why the Lord tarries and why he does not yet return, because he wants to write you into the story. Before he returns or calls you home, he has something for you. What is lacking is, is, is you. The church that looks like Christ must now start to grow up and become even more like Christ. That's what's lacking. God wants Christians, little Christs, in the final sentences of his salvation story, to pick up little crosses. Identity and activity, they're always interwoven in this book of Colossians, always connected. Our ideas in Christ, let's now live out that idea in our activity. 
So he calls himself, in verse 25, a minister and a steward. They're both servant words. They're both words that uh, are to do with acts of service, working in a household, perhaps. And in a household, the servant frequently not only took their identity from the master, they also found their experience mirrored that of the master. If the master was engaged in a particular trade, the servants would be as well. If some fate befell the master, it would impact the entire household. Everyone working for the master would find their experience was bound up with our identity. And Paul says in the same way, if this thing happened to Christ, it will also, in a lesser way, happen to you. If you serve him, you will suffer. So why do it? Why go and serve Christ? Why bother with the grace of Christ, week one? Why bother with the identity of Christ, week two? And now why bother with the work of Christ, week three, if it means in the end you will end up like Christ? It's not a very good sales pitch, is it? Come and get saved, guys. It's completely free. Uh, And by the way, you might also, you know, just get a little bit crucified not great. Why bother? Because he didn't stay crucified. He rose up and he would come again to judge the living and the dead and lift us up. That is why bother. It is our only hope for salvation. And in the meantime, in those last few words of the last sentence of the last chapter of this story of salvation, God wants one more thing and that is for you to grow up. For your identity to have such an impact on your activity that you start to live out like you already are. You get ready for the end. He wants us to become mature, he says in verse 28. It's not a word to do with up, it's a word to do with the end. Teleos, it means the end. The fullness, the completeness, the consummation. It uh, is all to do with where we're going in the end. And you might say in simple terms, all Paul wants is for our activity to behold our identity, see where it is already in Christ Jesus, up and then catch up. That is his aim in this section of the book of Colossians. Like a sort of spiritual slinky is how I imagine this. I wish that we'd... Instead of calling it working for growth, I wish we'd called it the spiritual slinky. I think it would have got people's attention. You know a slinky, you know the thing, like a kind of coiled spring thing? Sometimes they come with like a bit of a dog stuck to either end. But imagine the one without the dog stuck to it. Not the sausage dog slinky, just the plain old metal spring. And not the cheap, you know, five below plastic one, but the real good old-fashioned metal ones. You know the thing, I mean, where you put it at the top of the staircase and it's like a big spring and you pull one end and you move it down a step and then you let go and the the back end kind of follows and then the front end jumps on a bit and the back end follows and it jumps and it follows and it jumps and it follows. A slinky, you know the thing. Um, Except the, the Christian slinky is a weird slinky. The Christian slinky works backwards. The Christian slinky has the identity end already at the very top of the staircase. And amazingly, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the behavior end catches up. I'm pretty sure that as Paul was writing this, he had in his mind a Christian slinky. 
Verse 29. For this I toil, struggling. The Greek word there means slinking. Uh, With all of his energy. It didn't. I made that up. Uh, With all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's a wonderful mixture of words here. Working words and power words. There's a few very human words to do with doing stuff. There are far more godly words to do with him powering stuff. It is almost like our Christian ID is at the top of the staircase, and Paul knows that in Christ alone, amazingly, it does have the power inevitably to make our behavior catch up. It's powered by Christ. That's why the Christian slinky is so weird. Now, an important thing. This identity that you have, that's already at the top of the staircase in Christ Jesus, is not something that you can fake. It's not something you can work out yourself. You didn't put your ID up there. It's not down to you to work your ID to the top of the staircase. You cannot fake your ID. Some years ago, uh, you know this, I applied for a green card. There's lots and lots of ways to get a green card. The very best way is to be married to an American. That's what I did. And as part of this, Cad and I had to go to a courthouse and prove that we were genuinely married. And we went off to do this. Courtney's still post-traumatic about the whole experience. (laughs) Oh, boy. And uh, we were represented by um, our attorney, who, although he did have an encyclopedic knowledge of of immigration law, he also had, I think it's fair to say, uh, some quirky ways. And uh, one of the, the, the quirks that he had was that he would become exceedingly agitated by the smell of, of bad coffee. And attorneys in the room might well at this point be questioning his choice of career. Because uh, we got into the waiting room, and I kid you not, there were about 100 people in there all drinking bad coffee. Uh, and this meant that by the time we got in to see the immigration official, our attorney was just all over the place. Right, he, had, he had lost it. He entered the room sideways, clinging to the wall, and he took up his position behind a potted yucca plant at the back of the courtroom. It was uh, quite extraordinary. He left me at the front on my own. You know, uh, may it please your honour, I'm the applicant in this matter, and my representative is hiding in your courtroom's foliage. Um, when normal people honest, can we have a green card, please? Uh, She started with the questions all calculated, of course, to elicit whether the marriage was genuine. And, you you know, I've I've talked about this before. You can picture it. You know, when did you meet? The answer is May the 1st, 2005. Kat just makes up a date. It's actually technically after our marriage date, which didn't help. Um, What toothpaste does he use? She goes, "Uh, cinnamon. I said, I hate cinnamon. She goes, well, really? Why didn't you say something? I've been buying it for you all these years. I said, well, you know, I'm frightfully sorry, darling. Didn't want to hurt your feelings. Uh, where was your son born? You know, Peru. Just make something up. Um, she asked about our soap powder and our shower gel and which side of the bed we slept on. How much was your last electric bill? We got every single question completely wrong. Our attorney hid throughout in a yucca plant And every single time we would answer one of these things wrong and catch the other one out, we would bicker and disagree and argue over every single answer until finally she stopped us in the middle of the tumult and she said, look, I can clearly see that you're married. Stamped the thing and said, 
Welcome to America. <laughs> Love it. You don't prove your identity by knowing a load of facts. You prove it by living out who you really are. And throughout this thing, we were laughing. We were making eye contact with each other. We were holding hands. We were swapping little bits of paper. We were apologizing to each other. We were speaking nicely. And, you know, it was obvious. As a piece of advocacy, it was a total shocker. You'd have thrown anyone out of your courtroom, Your Honor. If, you, if, if that had happened, you'd have been appalled, disbarred probably. But as a, as a demonstration of affection, it was the real thing. It was clear that we were married. And at this point in the letter of Colossians, I think Paul is, is far more interested now in the manifestation of our identity than in the more foundational question of how we got our identity in the first place. That was the last two weeks. If you missed it in the ice storm, listen online. Short version, it's the gospel. Your ID is in Christ. It's already up. Now it's time to look at behavior in light of identity and let it catch up. The purpose of examining behavior is not so that we can behave well enough to be saved. It's so that the Christian can reflect on their own behavior and gain some confidence about where their identity is. They see how their behavior is changing. And it gives them some comfort in the middle of suffering about where they're going. You see that in verse 2. The purpose of all this talk of activity is that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He sees how encouraging it is for believers when we grow up, when we can look back at our lives and see change. It is just encouraging for us. You know, like that Christian slinky, maybe it's, it's not been all up. Maybe it's two steps up and one step back. But, you know, there's some degree of backsliding in every Christian person's life. But if you can look back at the last month or year or decade or lifetime and see that you are not where you were as a spiritual baby, but you have grown up, well, then you have that encouragement and that assurance that he wants. Throughout that whole uh, debacle in the courtroom, we were never questioning if we were married. It never occurred to us that we might not be married. The, the judge could have thrown us out of the country, but she couldn't have thrown us out of our marriage. Whether she believed that we were married or not was actually objectively immaterial to the fact that we are. And the advantage of, of knowing your identity and having your behavior mirror your identity is that no one can shake you away from that truth. No one can make you believe you're not saved. Verse 4 says, I say this in order. Here's the reason we're on about all this stuff. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, clever theological pieces of sophistry that get you to doubt where you're going. Imagine if the judge had said to us, you're not really married. Come off it. I don't believe you. 
You don't even know what side of the bed he sleeps on. You can't even agree on a brand of toothpaste. Your advocate's hiding in a shrubbery. She could have gone at us all day long trying to get us to doubt, but she could never have persuaded us otherwise. And in the same way, when our behavior starts to catch up with our identity, there is no way that the enemy, the evil one, can come and shake you away from the truth of your real, real ID. When Satan comes up to you in the middle of the night and he whispers, you're not really a saint. When you come to church and you read about the saints in Christ Jesus and you're aware of what you did or you said or you felt last night, maybe even this morning on the way into church, and the enemy creeps into this very sanctuary and doubts your ability to walk forward and receive Holy Communion, you can look at where you've been and remember where your identity is and know that he is wrong. His lies are immaterial to the truth of whose you are and where you are going. It's so much easier to see the truth when your behavior catches up with your identity. He concludes the passage with one more image, one more image like this, about the firmness of our faith in Christ, verse 5. And uh, I think he's really repeating an idea, just to make it land, because he knows we doubt. Uh, Firmness is the brilliant word, a very clever word to have chosen, because firmness, in one sense, it means foundation. And you can't build anything without a foundation, And the bigger, the better, the stronger, the deeper the foundation, the taller the building you can build, the more it can go up. You go to see a skyscraper, it has very deep foundations. But it's a Christian slinky word, this word foundation, because in the original language, like the Christian slinky, it actually works backwards. The word foundation or firmness, as it may be translated for you there, it actually means firmament. It's a word not to do with the ground, but rather the sky. That's what this word is all to do with. They thought that that most excellent canopy the air, as Hamlet put it, this brave or hanging firmament fretted with golden fire, was the dome that hung over the, the earth. They believed that the atmosphere surrounding the world was solid. They didn't realize that it was gravity that was holding things in and stopping them from floating off into space. They thought it was the sky. They thought it was the solid dome surrounding the earth that kept things down. And it was, you'll be pleased to hear, bad science. It was very, very good theology. Profoundly biblical idea that our foundation is not below us, but rather above And Paul says, you begin with Jesus. He is your foundation. And you want, if you want your life to to grow up, you need to start building on it from there. Start up and build up. Be founded on Christ Jesus and let your behavior catch up. Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you so much for the the firmament and the Christian slinky. Please, God, as we uh, behold our identity, would you see our behavior transform? We recognize that we backslide and we make mistakes and we slip away. But we know firmly that our identity is in you. And perhaps we do see ourselves maturing in faith 
in whatever faltering way that uh, may be. And so we ask God that we would find comfort in that and that we would not rest where we are, but that you would continue to call us up to live out your likeness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.